Hey, Joe, we're live. Really? We're live. Wow, that is, came without warning. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing a little troubleshooting. It's okay. It's all going to work out. Oh, you, you're stretching it out over there. Yeah, it's sort of, you know, much like a cat on a radiator, I curled up to sleep. So my posture is a little bit. Well, it's all in the show. Out of yeah, whack. Get, get it all lined up. Nice. Here. Give me the, let, let me restart it. Why is that? Well, I just figured you didn't want all that in the show. Oh. You do? Let's leave no, it I take it you're lying. You usually lie about that. When you say <laughs> you're not going to put something in the show, you usually lie. I'm not, I wouldn't say it's a lie. Lying means there's an intention to deceive. Mm, yeah. I it, think we're tracking each other quite no. well verbally here. <laughs> when I say something goofy like that, that is, that is known to both of us to be false, it's for the absurdity of stating what is not the case. Ah, this is interesting, it's, it's right? The joint so, absurdity, it's so joint, the, joint appreciation sort of, of absurdity. Nuance of uh, of the fact that um, we've got this long course of of joking on that very point. So, it, a, a listener who wasn't familiar with that, uh, who were t- who was taking it literally, would make a mistake. Like the right, uh, and yet because we know, um, then. You're not lying anymore. You might have been the first time, but I didn't get it. But yeah, I don't. I think even then, maybe the first time I did it, it was just you know. I think I'll probably have to take that out, and maybe I intended to take it out at the time. And then when I went back to listen oh, to edit, and okay. I was like, oh no, we're going to leave all that yeah. in. So so we quickly passed from you know innocent supposition that turned out to be incorrect, which is not a lie. That's just no. a mistake. Yeah. Uh, to jokey jocular fun. Yeah. Which also isn't a lie. Now, speaking of intention to deceive, we got we got a bunch of topics today. I know this is why my ear perked up when you when you talked to, started talking. You're about thinking you're thinking about fraud. Your intent, yeah, correct. So you do you want to tell me about this or how, uh, how do we? Why don't you? You're the one who who pointed out the 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 epic DoorDash uh, saga. <laughs> well, there's this Times article about um, uh, a writer. I don't have the 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 notes right in front of me right now. Um, we're going to put it in the show notes. Right. Who had taken um, uh, jobs in various kind of gig economy jobs, but, but a particular kind, not not Uber and Lyft, but um, uh, these um, courier, you know, food courier type right. things. What, is so there a name for these? Uber Eats, Postmates, yeah. uh, DoorDash, things of this sort. There was one called... Hmm. And the person's in New York City, so it's probably like many of these services and it's probably... With fancy names. Jillions of orders coming in at every minute. At uh, at every hour of every day. Yeah. Did you read City. that article? Did you take a look? I, I at glanced it? at it. Oh, I, I, and only because of the um, the the hubbub. Yeah, it's fascinating. Describing it's, going into these buildings with office workers, and they're kind of herded into, you know, in, in one case into this um, into kind of the bowels of the building, past dumpsters and the service corridor. They're very kind of you know, in in a world of kind of gleaming windows and steel and and nice atria. There's this for the help. There's this you know this dirty corridor, and and he's with like a bunch of other like food delivery per- people and some windows open and they hand it to the office workers on the other side, mm. exchanging like a, you know, hi, thanks kind of thing. Right. So it's not even a, you know, which I guess solves the problem of, you know, if you have many, many couriers going, you know, you have certain building access security concerns. Sure. Here's a way for people to get what they, you know, I don't know. Seemed, yeah. Seemed odd to me. It's like a common meeting point to, for the handoff. Yeah. You're saying, yeah. Huh. Well, so anyway, uh, uh, one element of this story sparked ire on the internet, rage, <laughs> and 
and it seems so. Here, here's 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 the deal. So you get paid by and and this particular um, uh, talking about DoorDash kerfuffle was was yet related to DoorDash. Right. So so their delivery people are are paid by the job and. The um, and of course on these apps, as people know, you can tip, right? Um, with all these apps, you can add right. a, little, a little tip to the thing. And and I think importantly, uh, for for what we're about to talk about or this conversation we're having, I think importantly, um, that's the word that's used, right? Right. Tip. Uh, and have you re- used DoorDash? I have not. I haven't seen um, it, in but the I'm app. reading in this news coverage. Yeah, that it sounds like that's the word that's used, and the yeah. reason that's important is because. It's a word that is very rich with meaning from all kinds of experiences we've had in, um, you know, IRL, as it were. Um, as it uh, were. And, uh, you know, at various restaurants, various service providers. Um, you know, I, a few months ago, there was a, I think there was a sort of a, a little, um, a, an uptick in news stories about, uh, for example, leaving a tip for the, people who clean your hotel room if you're staying yeah. at, a, at a hotel. Now, th- I have to say, that's not something I grew up with in the South. It wasn't common. I think it was common in the Northeast. And now, you know, of course, I do it all the time. You try to find cash to But leave, there's but... this, again, it's the word tip. Like, it's it's, yeah. it's this very specific word that um, is used in a lot of different contexts. And actually, in that sense, covers a, a real range of behavior. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is makes it fun and interesting because it's complex. There's nuance and, and what have, people mean and what people infer. And so that's what's happening for in listeners apps. overseas. I mean, the United States is famously a tipping has a tipping culture, which doesn't exist in many other places. And True. there are a lot of uh, there are some upsides, but many downsides to the tipping culture. And Indeed. we've talked about it on this show. I don't remember which episode now, but I, I, I feel Did like we're talking about restaurants that we're trying to eliminate. The, the tipping. I'm sure we talked about that at some point. Practice, there was, there there was, was some a, great articles a few years about, ago. There was, yeah, yeah. About, about people who there's a certain personality type which enjoys tipping as a way to exert power over the person that you're tipping, right? right? The person who likes to adjust the tip rather than, you know, it's, you know, no matter how the service ends up being, you tip, you know, your 20% or 25% or 18%, whatever it is that you're in a position to do, but like you're consistent right. with it. Yeah. Um, but some people enjoy, right, the ability to punish do, others, basically. It does seem so, yes. Yeah. Um, one hears that or one sees that or one reads about that. Um, so there, so these apps, food yeah. delivery apps, this New York Times reporter writes a story after having done a bunch of these and, and the, the DoorDash ire arises because. And juggling many of these at the same time, which seems to be common among people who work in this sector but of the that's economy. That's true for rideshare. The rideshare, I didn't even like that label. That's true for the ride apps as well. Like the there are people apps. who are both Lyft driver and Uber driver yeah. in the same vehicle, same person. They've just got multiple apps on their phones and they're managing, they're juggling these different things. Mm-hmm. And uh, so why was there ire? Well, there was ire because it turns out that the terms of the agreement between the delivery people and and um, and uh, DoorDash was that they, and the way they put it, they guaranteed a certain amount per delivery, which I think was six dollars and eighty five cents. That's that number sticking in my head, but I could be wrong. And so, if the um, so on a on a in, in this particular case, I think it was six eighty five. I forget exactly. It's not always six eighty five, but in this case, it was. I think. And, and so, if um, for example, so if you had an order, if that was the guarantee, and um, uh, your compensation on that order was a certain amount, uh, and they tipped to a point that went over six eighty five. You would keep the amount in excess of that, 
Does that make sense? So, you know, you're a delivery person, you're going to deliver for DoorDash. You know that you are guaranteed at least this amount for this delivery, right? As a, as a delivery fee paid to me as the deliverer. Right. And you would think ordinarily that if someone gave you a tip, that it would be added to that that fee. You know, that, you know that's kind of your wage, although wage has a particular meaning here. Uh, but But your payment from DoorDash is one thing. And the tip from the person to whom you're delivering is something else. And customarily in our culture, it's thought to be personal between the recipient of the service and the service provider, independent of the uh, of the you know uh, of the entity who employs the service yeah, the, provider. Yeah, the the, the, wor- the very word tip indicates that um, uh, that the the person receiving the service. So it would be the food delivery in this context, not the food deliveror. Right. Right. Um, would be making a side payment separate and apart from whatever the fee the food delivery owed to the food provider, right? As opposed to the food deliverer. Right. Um, you know, there's some restaurant, right? They're getting paid X. Uh, there's a fee maybe that shows that's the deliverer getting the fee. And then there's a, t- th- like this is true here in Athens with bulldog food, which people here in Athens have used. You've used, I've used, I'm sure many people have used some of our listeners. Um, it, it the, This is what the receipt kind of looks like where you've got the restaurant is getting paid. There's a delivery fee. And then you could add a tip above and beyond that. It's called the tip. Right. Um, and uh, it sounds like DoorDash uh, on the surface looked uh, looked that way uh, to the people who were getting food delivery. So the deliver e supposed to d- deliver or. Um, it also sounds like their their app sort of went a, a bit of an extra step to say something like you know a hundred percent the the deliverer receives a hundred percent of the tip. Yeah. So so in a so way, so there's they not did. some percentage coming off right. as like a handling fee or some credit card charge or something right. like that, which a deliver e might think. So for each delivery, there was just this guaranteed delivery fee, right? We're talking as between the restaurant at, and the deliverer. No, as between as between DoorDash and the and the deliverer, right? So DoorDash guarantees the person doing the delivery a, cer- a certain right. amount, right? So there's like, actually four people. There's the restaurant, DoorDash, yeah. the deliverer, and the delivery. Yeah, forget about the restaurant. Okay. Forget about the restaurant. Um, Hold them constant, right? Yes, right. And and so the, the idea is this. So, so if um, – uh, if I so so if I get um uh, this guarantee I have a, a base and uh, amount let's say it's four dollars right and so three dollars of that is my guaranteed tip income and so if I get stiffed if if the if the person to whom I'm delivering gives me no tip I still get my seven dollars that was my guaranteed delivery fee which was my four dollar ba- quote unquote base plus my three dollars in kind of guaranteed tip or something like that right so that's that's a guarantee guaranteed tip. Mm-hmm. Why isn't that just part of you? You've got a guaranteed fee of X dollars for making the delivery. There's there's different ways to structure this, right? As for, between DoorDash, between any app that wants to get food deliveries and and the person who actually delivers the food, right? There's a there's like a a component of their some minimum level of a guarantee, and it could be a little or it could be a lot. Yeah, and then there's some. I'm you know, out, I'm going to cut this because I think we're being confusing. Let me cut this. Is that all right? No, it's not all right because I think we're, str- we're we're struggling with the very things that are that people are trying to sort out these different moving pieces. Yeah, right? but I think I I misstated. So I apologize because I misstated. I, th- I think the way that it's structured. Okay. 
So why don't you take another shot at it? Well, it's just that there is this guaranteed fee, right? And every dollar, I think, that's tipped goes against this guaranteed fee. I think that's what it is. But see, this is why I want to... Now I'm worried that yeah, I'm that's, getting it wrong. That's, no, that's how I understood the DoorDash thing to work. So let's give an easier example just in terms of numbers, okay? Let's say the guaranteed minimum... And, and we think this is how DoorDash works, but if it's not, just imagine some hypothetical company, right? It doesn't need to be them. It could be anybody. Because right? they had no base. Yeah. So, so we've got uh, a guaranteed uh, minimum uh, for the deliverer of four bucks, let's yeah. say. Uh, and uh, let's say it's a $10 food order. Uh, maybe the person's going to tip a buck. Maybe they're going to tip two bucks. Who knows, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe they're going to tip zero. Um, but uh, the app, right? If they're if they're guaranteed four dollars, right? One one thing you could do with a thing you were calling a tip is you could say, well, you know, that tip is between the delivery and deliverer, so the person who delivers is going to get a hundred percent of that tip, right? It's four dollars plus whatever anyone tips them. Yeah, that would be, and I think that would be a common sense thing to think if you're hearing the word tip. Yeah, right. Tip just means the thing above and beyond. The workers' base pay. Yeah, that the deliver that the person getting the service, getting the recipient, yeah. is going to give in right? all contexts. So think about sitting at a restaurant. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah, exa- yeah. It's right. obvious. Same yeah. way. Right. Exactly. Um, but it turns out, it seems DoorDash may have been, and let's assume it was, or let's imagine a hypothetical company that was doing this. Right. Say, well, actually, we guarantee the four, and we take the tip. And use that to 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 subsidize that four. Yeah. So you you get if someone tips two bucks, twenty percent on a ten dollar charge, right? If someone tips the two dollars, well, okay, you're going to get that, and then we DoorDash are going to put in the other two, so you'll get your four, your minimum four. Yeah. Um, that's I think not at all what a typical listener would hear when they heard the word tip. Yeah. So I went back and I was looking at it. Uh, as you, you said it exactly right, and because it was worse than what was in my mind. What was in my mind was that they were being paid a base kind of delivery fee plus like a guaranteed um, uh, tip amount to bring them up to a total. You can imagine it being structured that way, you right? Could, but that's, you, I think it's, it's being, not what's happening not, here. So, so the customers' tips um, uh, are, are kind of credited against the entire guaranteed amount. Correct. So, if my guaranteed delivery is eight bucks. And I'm tipped eight bucks. I still only get eight bucks. Right. right? And importantly, but if I'm tipped nine bucks, I get the nine bucks. Yes. Important. What, what I think is really interesting here is it is an it is an honest thing for DoorDash to say that the delivery person gets one hundred percent of the tip. Uh, but it is, I think, deeply deceptive about what what most listeners would hear that statement as. Well, I what think they would right. hear it as is, oh, the tip I give them is a separate thing and they get all of it in addition to whatever they were being paid by DoorDash. Right. And instead they 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 get it's in in an individual tra- on an individual transaction basis they get none of it. But here's it's, this is such a fascinating example. Um uh this DoorDash thing. So, um from my perspective as a consumer, I do feel lied to when I hit tip and realize that and, and then find out later that none of it went to the service worker, right? In other words, my decision to tip at all and my decision to tip in the amount that I did, right, were both determined by my belief, right, that the money is going to the service worker. It's why, right. it's why one tips, right? Right. You ha- and you have that belief because of like Culture. decades and decades of social practice right. that indicate that that's what the word tip means. Right. 
So, so that feels deceptive and wrong, and it feels like the company is taking something from the delivery person. And I should say, and we'll mention this in a second, there's an update to this. I don't know if you saw that there was an update, but DoorDash is changing its policy. They say they are studying it and going to change it. They, yeah. they say they're definitely going to change it. So yeah. there will be something more like this base, and you get to keep tips, and right. I don't know if it... And, but, and can I praise something about this before we... So, yeah. So, so one thing that this system that we were just describing by DoorDash, put aside whether or not it's deceptive in the way that it may be deceptive, um, and I think it very obviously is, um, one thing that it's very, very good at is <clears throat> providing a consistent answer to the question, how much is the delivery person going to get paid? Yes. Uh, which is a thing that people who, who work on a tip-based system right. often say is a bad thing about being paid yes. that way, is that it's very unpredictable. Whether you're going to get a lot or a little or something in between, day to day, you don't really know. Because it's so based so much on people's whim, yeah, and people are weird about tips, and blah, 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 blah. So... Uh, If we, on our side, the consumer side, didn't know anything about this and and tipped normally as we always would, then what you could see is happening is that basically DoorDash is is providing a kind of stiffing insurance, right? They're they're insuring their workers against being stiffed by – Right, right. That that's the against the people who don't tip, and we don't know the what proportion of that pe- it, it people is. Like, how many people don't tip in this circumstance? Right. Um, and and, and but they were not seizing like really generous tips and redistributing it to all of their workers, right? Which is another mm-hmm. way that you could think no. of doing this, right? Right. Um, so the problem, so, and <clears throat> so that actually, so viewed that way, it seems totally reasonable, right? That you know. So long as the delivery people know how much they're going to make, roughly, and they know what the variables are, right? Um, it seems like you know the, a decision to say, okay, you get you know this much, and if you, if the tip is more, you can keep it, but maybe usually it won't be. So here's a guarantee. So that that seems like a reasonable way of proceeding. Right? Now, one last uh, question. However, so, yeah. it, you're, right, uh, it does <laughs> it does seem reasonable if the main thing you care about is the predictability of the amount you get paid. Um, but one question. So so. If, if well, the, not only that. I said the main thing you care yeah. about is that um, because it's that's the thing it minimizes is uncertainty about how much you're getting paid. What the I think um, so. So just a question about so if we assume that the delivery fee doesn't uh, the guaranteed minimum fee for delivering doesn't change all that much with the with the um, like the quantity or expense of the food delivered. Yeah. Um, it, it seems to me that the you, you could pretty you could you could say ah so you know uh, if if the if ten percent let's say is the average tip people are giving I have no idea what it would be if if the among the people who tip if the average tip is ten percent of the cost of the food then in instances where the cost, 10% of the cost of the food was equal to the minimum that you were being promised, it, people would have to tip at least that 10% to even begin to get you some right. money above and beyond the minimum charged. Right. Which seems to me to be a very big incentive for people to accept delivery tasks from more expensive restaurants. Yeah. Um, because on average, the bills from those would be higher. So the tips that result would be higher mm-hmm. uh, and might be more likely to go above and beyond the minimum fee. Now, maybe the minimum guaranteed fee is also higher for those restaurants. But there's also case. just no reason why the delivery fee should vary according to the price of the goods being delivered. 
Right. Yeah, that's why I assumed at the start that it didn't vary with that. Oh, I, I think assumed, like hypothetically, let's imagine it doesn't really vary very much with the with the amount of food or the price of the food. Yeah, I've never used DoorDash, so I don't know. But I, I don't other know delivery either. services, I do think, are a percentage of the bill. The what is the delivery fee? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Know I think the I, to that. I don't. This is like boy, we're showing our ignorance of this. But, but dear listeners, the reason we're bringing this up is is uh, is for something that comes after all this related to fraud. It's not so much about yeah, the details. So, although so the details so I guess to me are, we should get to as that. I was looking at it today, were more and more fascinating because, um, uh, you know, in in a, in a way, if they just renamed tip delivery fee and made it constant, um, it would accomplish. I think many good things, which is to eliminate, <laughs> eliminate tipping and, and, you know, but at the same time have a clear wage and they would just have to raise that enough to attract enough people to want to do the work okay. now. And, and, and then all my concerns about it relate to more general concerns about wealth distribution in the economy. Mm. Right. Okay. I mean, if you know, an adva- if you know something about the work and you can try it and you can drop out, I mean, one of the really attractive things and the person described this in the first article is they kind of had no boss. Um, so they weren't within this hierarchy, uh, but on the other hand, they didn't have, you know, a lot of the safety that comes with working in a firm or a hierarchy or something sure. like that. Right. But they, but not having that, they felt a certain amount of freedom. Um, but you know, so, so you think, well, you know, then you, if you know how much you're going to make and you opt into that, it sounds like one of these kind of libertarian free market dream kind of things, but may, maybe in a good way. Um, the downside of course is it's hard work and you don't get you don't make enough money to do all the things that people feel like you need to do in this society. Yeah. You know, you're not going to make enough money to go to college and send kids to college and buy a home and provide for health care because that's something you have to pay for. So, but see, all of these concerns, right, I think are related to, you know, more general, like I said, more general concerns about wealth distribution than they are to the actual practice itself. Yes. So I actually think that DoorDash's model, had it not been deceptive – Right. Yeah, except for the fraud. And and even the deception, <laughs> like you can see from their angle how it is basically, you know, we are we are building into the delivery fee protection against your being stiffed. Yes. And I think if it um, – I think there would be a way to describe that to everybody involved. Like if we went to the DoorDash FAQ page mm-hmm. so that people who were DoorDash customers who were getting the food delivered right. to their apartment or whatever could see – described in an, in a candid way the that our pricing structure is is a hedge against people who don't tip we don't and you could even imagine yes but th- th- that's a, what's so fascinating about this because because that strategy turns on the customers remaining ignorant because if i know then i'm going to the the strategy of he, suppose i really do want my riders to my deliverers to be he, hedged against like people who are stiffing Right. right. And, and maybe it's because like tips are like really up and down. And most people, you know, many people tip 20 percent, but it's possible you could go a whole day and be stiffed by everybody. Right. And that would suck. Right. Yeah. So I really do want to provide it. You know, all this is money coming into the business and it doesn't really relate to the job the writer did. So we really ideally would like to spread all this around. Right. So I just want to provide this guaranteed thing right and so i describe it that way to the writers they understand what everyone everyone's on the that up and they up have about a minimum it. guarantee right. and it's right. this high right which seems actually to be roughly what happened here like they were clear about that um the problem is the minute that customers know that when they choose to tip that it doesn't that it's going to offset something guaranteed to the deliverer they'll choose not to yeah right? all so tips, you can't all have tips this. go to zero right right so you're, you're basically you're ensuring 
against something which you will create more of if people know that you're insuring against it. So it's like a it's like a like a weird kind of it's not moral hazard because it's not like the deliverers who will do a different job. It's right. like the customers who will, you know, it's like like the hurricane will behave differently because it knows that it's being insured against. Yeah, we're to like I'm um, uh, so can we there's a way to map is this a Tinkerbell or a, a reverse Tinkerbell? I don't know. I don't. What does that even mean? So a Tinkerbell is a thing that's true because people believe it to be true, uh, and a reverse Tinkerbell is a thing that's false because people believe it to be true. Mm-hmm. So if everyone believes that a particular restaurant is really is really uh, very empty and therefore a great time to go to that restaurant on a certain night right, and time, right. then it will become very crowded, and the, so it's a reverse Tinkerbell. Ah, um, it'll be made great. false by being believed in. Right. Um, so is the so so Tinkerbellness is a function of kind of culture. Yeah, like it's made true by being believed in. Yeah. Um, so is this a <laughs> so is this a Tinkerbell or a reverse Tinkerbell? The the, the like pe- people won't tip if if everyone understands that um, that tipping in the DoorDash system right. means underwriting their guaranteed yeah. minimum. And this is what I was trying to get before all the like trying to figure out exactly how it was structured. It's it, like in its best light, the company is the company is taking on the risk of bad tips, right? In other words, they're insuring the deliverers. But it's a, like I was saying, like it's it's insurance where the disaster being mitigated against is responsive to the fact of insurance, right? It, which is not is not moral hazard, right? right? It, but it's the it's kind Friendly of friendly amendment. Other side. It's 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 responsive to the knowledge of the existence of the insurance. So yeah. if the insurance can exist, and there could be some yes. X factor right. of yeah, people yeah, yeah. who don't. Either don't understand right. it, don't right. pay attention to it, don't know it. So right. what it sensitive to That was a truly is, friendly amendment. <laughs> it, <laughs> it really was. Because it was accurate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> so so imagine, the, imagine a hurricane with knowledge of, of which parts of the coast are insured against hurricanes. And it changes its behavior based on this. Like, you can't, right? You can't imagine, like, yeah. you know, farm insurance and all kinds of other, you know, or fire insurance. But I think and, this is all proof. Like, the very fact that they can't explain it candidly and fully accurately in a way that a customer would understand right. is proof that it's fraud. Well, um, it expo- in, in the sense right. that they're they're expecting they're both they're both misdescribing it and counting on people's behavior to be altered by right. that fact in a way that causes them to surrender money. Right? That's like cl- that is like a classic, <laughs> right? Um, yes. And this is why the Dan Epps or Incur exchange right. which was well, me, which was beautiful. There, it, it exposes I think the fact that you can't make this model work while being transparent to everybody, right? The model fails as soon as everyone knows about it. And especially it as exposes, a particular person yeah, in it knows about exposes it. Exposes the weakness of kind of tipping culture in a way, but that, right? That's like, true too. It, but, okay. but I think it's like it would affect my behavior and I have no desire for my tip to reflect any kind of power I have over anyone else, right? So, I, you know, I would tip the, per, the delivery person the same you know, whether they were late or early and, you know, the things that would make right. me increase my tip probably relate more to my perception of their need right. than it does to anything then, then else. But, a, but, but even I, like if I knew it was all going to DoorDash, I'm not, you know. Yeah. There's mm. a complication here too that that w- what we've been talking about is all tips within the app, right? Mm-hmm. So a, a workaround would be tip in cash, Right. right, which it, only works because you're encouraging the 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 deliverer to be dishonest yes. in their relationship with DoorDash. Right, so now you're the one committing a dishonest act, right, to counteract their. I get the sense this is of, very common. I mean, I you know I leave cash in hotels, right, and I mean you don't 
like you know you don't PayPal someone in a hotel. This is tipping or, the cleaners. Yeah, or you, yeah, you, you yeah, you use leave, Apple Pay to exactly. pay someone, right? So you you know you're going to leave cash, and but that's of course a totally different context. Yeah, right. There, there DoorDash are, is an app. I don't that, want to say anything about that context because I don't know. But there are many contexts where people give cash, knowing that one of the virtues of giving cash is the person will not report it on their income taxes. They yeah, they might assume that. Um, but they don't they don't know it. They're not counting on it. But um, it might be the reason that they chose cash instead of a check. Maybe. Uh, would, yeah, some assumption about either from their own experience or what they imagine a person would do. That could be. That could be. Of course, it might not be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to know. Um, and especially, it's especially hard to know if you haven't never interacted yeah. with that person to talk about the details of what they're going to do. So I was thinking about writing you a check, but I became concerned that I'm yeah. I mean. So, I mean, but do you, this, this, well, we're going to talk about flashing headlights a little bit later. But um, so this kind of comes back to one of these these moral, yeah. moral conundra. But exactly. Uh, but but you would uh, the problem is I never have any cash. But now I feel a moral obligation to have some to get some cash so that I can tip <laughs> in, so that I can tip in cash. But like the reason to tip in cash would be in order to facilitate the reason I would tip in cash rather than just tip in the app or tip somewhere else. The only reason I would do that, in fact, because I would have to go out of my way to do it because I'd have to actually get some cash out, right? Would be to facilitate the persons breaking their contract with their employer or with their well, their independent contractors, of course, right? I made a little scare quote. So yeah, breaking another. breaking their contract with the with the uh, with the provider. Um, so that that would be the reason I would do it, right? But the reason you would want them to break their contract is because you think deep down, like either the contract is unfair or you're healing a, 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 a um, you're healing a part of the economy that needs to be healed in right. some way, or I, you know, it's it's all very like strange. if you figure out the deception because you saw this news coverage, or and then and then you're like, well, I want to work around that. So yeah, um, but then if everybody did that, then they wouldn't be able to guarantee the same. Or the the reason they're able to guarantee the the well, unless you think that they are systematically underpaying. And you think that because there's not enough competition or they have market power or some other thing, right? Then, you know, if everyone tipped less, they, they, would, they would have to guarantee less. Presumably. Yeah. Yeah. Presumably their ability to set the, minim- the minimum guaranteed fee for the deliverer at a certain level was because uh, you, could, you could predict a certain percentage of tipping behavior. Yeah. Which would subsidize... So, so a bunch of DoorDash's minimum fee payments to its right. deliverers. A part of in this update article, a big part of it is, um, well, not a big part of, it, but but a bunch of the DoorDash workers are on, on Reddit saying, you know, basically being unclear about how this is going to work. You know, um, well, because they haven't announced the structure yet, but right. being worried the that, new structure, but that being basically exposed to the vis- uh, vicissitude of tippers is, you know, who knows how that's going to work out? Will there be more money in their pockets, less money in their pockets, and yeah. the, you know, and even if it's the is, same amount, is it is it unpredictable? Right, yeah. which is a separate factor from how much you wind up with, but, and it's, it's a terrible factor. You know, and this is the problem with like tipping cultures in in the service industry because the less money you make, the less you're able to buffet. You know, That's fluctuations true. in income, absolutely. And so, you if know. you if you approached it very differently, where the base pay were sufficient to be a good wage, um, there there probably would be less tipping. Uh, it would probably happen if someone uh, received it. A person might think, oh, you know, I would tip because I, in, I, I did receive truly exceptional service, right? It would be yeah. an unusual thing. Right. Um, or it's maybe, more like in Europe. I, I, yeah, yeah. Or maybe yeah. you would just round up to the nearest whole dollar or something like that. Yeah. Instead of you leaving 20% or 15% or whatever. And I'm in the uh, – Judge John Hodgman talks about tipping quite a bit. 
Mm-hmm. I would commend every word he's ever said on the subject to anyone who wants to hear something ennobling and good about tipping behavior right. from the tip levers. Not, not least of which is that if, like I do, you're not a fan of tipping culture, which you I'm still, not. You, which I am not, you still must tip like lavishly <laughs> right. within your means. What, Correct. Within your means. Uh, yeah. That is my own view as well for myself. Yeah. Uh, that to, to do that, uh, as much when, as one can when possible within the frame and, of yeah, one, yeah, one yeah, can afford. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, so why did we talk about this then? Where were you going with this? <laughs> I thought we were going to talk about yes. the Orin Courage and Epps exchange, so the, quite, so the, the delightful <laughs> exchange. Good things do occasionally happen on Twitter. By mm-hmm. good, I mean I enjoyed them. Yeah. In in a wholesome way, not in uh, like getting uh, liking someone's anger or something like which is not wholesome. So Dan Epps, um, law prof, we've had him on the show. Yes. Um, and uh, former host of uh, the First Mondays Correct. Um, podcast. And the erstwhile First Mondays. And, uh, he, and so, he, so he says, how is this not fraud? Right. He links to a story or some post or it's something. A link to, it's a link to another tweet. Which, yeah, summarizing which, yeah, sort which, of the DoorDash Which basically scenario. links to the New York Times article right. that we have linked and, in the show. And Dan Epps' reaction, I think quite sensibly, is why isn't this just fraud? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sure seems that way to me on first hearing, at least, um, that, that it was fraud. And, and it seemed like it seemed like bad guy fraud when I first thought about it. This is before I really thought about the the kind of insurance model of it. Right. And, you know, you think, how did how did anybody how did any sophisticated group of people come up with this thing, which is basically yeah. lying to customers in order to get them to spend money? And, and again, the, the, the reason why it seems so it, to me, I would describe my sort of my my deep. My deep reaction that this was fraud and 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 quite ostentatious fraud at that um, was it was entirely about the use of the word tip and mm-hmm. this statement on their website. You know, the 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 deliverer gets one hundred percent of the tip. Yeah, like the person's going out of their way to reassure me psychologically as someone who's using the service that when I tip, it's a good thing because they get a hundred percent of it. Right, right. So it's, it really seems like a cherry on a pretty rotten Sunday <laughs> of fraud. Um, it struck me right. that way. But now, upon thinking, learning the but facts, but thinking about the whole model, it doesn't. You know, now I can see how this might have arisen from a group of people who were trying to make a model work for workers they were trying to attract. You know, yes, in a way that did, about the nuances yeah, and the complexity in a way that doesn't look like against, bad guy fraud. Correct. But on the other, but my first well, reaction from, was like, Dan's. from the point of view of motives, it doesn't look like that. Right. Right. Um, for, from the point of view of what did you actually decide to do and how did you describe it? Right. If you're deceiving people in order to get them to part with their dollars right. in a way that you would like, that's fraud. I yeah. mean, whatever you're – the fact that you're going to take the proceeds and donate mm-hmm. it to the Sisters of Mercy Yakety Yak who are going to help yeah. homeless kids <coughs> is guess. totally beside the point. But, but if you and I started a business called um, DoorDash Tip Insurance <laughs> and and basically we had contracts with all the DoorDash drivers and, and, uh, and bikers saying, you know – your obligation is to give us all of your tips and in exchange we will give you this amount per delivery right so we're kind of you know you know we're, we're not doordash we're a separate company which is insuring them against the vicissitudes of, of of bad tippers right right and um that there'd be nothing wrong with that right i, I suppose not although it does raise an interesting question about like the nature of the interaction between the deliverer and the recipient of the food Right. And if and if something was said about tips and where they were going, 
that convinced that person to give a tip when they wouldn't have or give a bigger tip than they otherwise would have. Um, I suppose as between those two people, you could have that conversation. Yeah, but you, you'd be... But it doesn't feel the same... You'd be a hothead and a moron if you saw the person walking into a convenience store and taking the cash that you had given them. You know, maybe they had all the cash tips in their pockets and buying a bunch of lotto tickets. You'd, and, and you said, wait a minute, I, I didn't give you the, I, I gave you those right, tips course. to buy groceries. And, so that's a know. great, right. So you can <laughs> you take this example that. about what's going to happen once it's in the hands of the deliverer mm-hmm. how, and what, and where does it go to next and right. what does it and come if, to write next? And if and the I'll, deliverer chooses and, and even pre-commits in advance to buy insurance with those proceeds, what's the... right? And if they were buying insurance against a health risk for getting hit right. by a car when they were on their bike versus buying insurance against a risk of getting stiffed by some other Now, what if the insurance recipient? provider is the employer? Uh, or, ah, so yeah, we have... Yeah, now our, that's a thing, right? Yeah, this is yeah, what so, law professors so, so, do, yeah, right. you know. Uh, <laughs> right. you know. Yeah, score one for law professors. But you can almost see the, you know, these people thinking, this is a really great model because we kind of even out the ups and downs and people have a, you know, they don't get unhappy when they get stiffed, you know, because yes. they're guaranteed. And, and so we and can this retain is how I now perceive. And, and then all of a sudden they, they see a story like this and, they, and right. they think, wait a minute, we've been lying to people, right? right. <laughs> it's like, I, and they, it might I, not have occurred to you. I, I think it's funny because this is how I now perceive, rightly or wrongly, fairly or unfairly, I will just confess, this is how I now perceive is sort of a classic Silicon Valley style story. <laughs> right, 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 right. Where there's this sort of something very interesting and smart Right. But there's also something sort of profoundly blinkered and amoral, <laughs> right? Right, right. And, and it because it's some econ on a chalkboard kind of calculation, right? Um, and and a kind of and then this sort of knack for using language to heal the gap between, right? Like actual human beings and normal behavior and. Mm-hmm my Silicon Valley slick workaround of yakety yak. And, and it's just a pit of brokenness and despair. Like when, when everyone finally realizes that that we're papering over with ordinary everyday language, uh, that, which invokes a certain social norm and a certain social practice, um, to sort of, Oh my gosh, there's a spreadsheet back there. That's actually, you know, made of. I hear you. I I feel so much. I feel this is so much harder than when I first looked at it, and and part of that is because I think my anger, my my initial feeling of like, um, you know, vicarious to be sure, feeling of being lied to, right? It, you know, it found its source was in the fact that these people are doing a hard job and are underpaid, and and too much in our society is controlled by people who are super wealthy. The and, deliverers, were being yeah, and all the yeah. older generations, you know, uh, got all the free stuff and then pulled up the ladders, right? So there's like it taps into a whole stream of like economic critique that yeah. one might have, right? And and of course, this isn't about that. DoorDash isn't responsible for all that, right? I mean, right. we're all responsible, but they're not particularly responsible. Correct, and. Hmm. So, so I hear you that like there's a certain kind of tone deafness to cultural conventions that may be important for reasons that a Silicon Valley entrepreneur might not understand. Married to a kind of shrewdness that we all have because we because we're native speakers of the language, right? A kind of shrewdness of you know, let's just look. We'll just call it a tip. Because well, people, cause it know, is a people tip. knows what tip. Precisely, this is the problem, right? Yeah, that, that's what they're thinking. This is a tip. 
All we're doing is we're taking that second <laughs> we're taking that second business, and that, you even get a hundred percent of it. We're it's just it's just subsidizing <laughs> this other side, this other payment, which is the base right. payment, which no one's thinking about right. right now, and so they won't focus on it. it so it has a prestidigitation quality to it, right? Like, it's a it's sort of or you can imagine like a, sort of like a, a late card like, Monty yeah. sort of I can't find the P. Where's the P? I'm why isn't the there? A, you can imagine people saying why isn't there an insurance system for tipped workers? You know, and you can imagine like some young wannabe entrepreneur. Thinking, oh, we, we ought to create that after they hear like their friends come in and right. having been stiffed at, them, at and, night, and then another, you know, on another night they made out um, quite well. And now, so as think, an aside, could, yeah. there 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 is an insurance system for tip workers, and it's called not having tip workers. Yes, uh, it's well, called having a, yes. a minimum wage that's set at an adequate level to so, so that people who have a full time job aren't living in poverty. Or it's um, called just um, as an idea. I'm just throwing it out. There. Professionalization of service work. I mean, so more like could be uh, again, more on the European model, and not having this independent contractor sham being pulled on everybody and so there's lots of ways we could tr- but the initial against- reaction to all this is boy that i've been lied to on the customer end i hit tip it, the word you used implied a certain thing would happen with that right. money it juiced with this you know 100 percent of it goes to the deliverer did it say that yeah that i did not see i didn't see it either i saw it reported hmm. that it their huh. software if you went and looked you know about you know, tell me about tips for DoorDash. 100% really? of it goes to the deliverer. Okay, so I, I can't represent that myself. I did not see that. And if you didn't see it. Nor did I see it. I saw it stated by somebody else. So, so let's, which let's, means it could be completely false. So let's put that out of it. Because <laughs> that makes it even, that makes it a little bit tougher. Okay. Although you can see the sense in which it does and, you know, and in which it doesn't. But so Dan Epps says fraud. How is this not fraud? And Warren Kerr, how does he respond, Joe? I don't remember the precise thing he said <laughs> great but it was this lengthy back and forth <laughs> on twitter it was very fun because they're both super smart mm-hmm. um they're both i think and we've had them both as guests on the show yeah not enough uh, could be said of everyone other than me um, <laughs> um they, they're both very smart they're both funny yeah, uh, they're both people of of goodwill. Yeah, uh, I, at least as I've experienced them. But Oren says I want to read the cases. Yeah. What, so the thrust of what Oren says is, is instead of saying, you know, how is this not fraud? He's like, well, you know, let's look at some cases. Yeah, like uh, because now, why would you want to look at cases here? How is this not obviously fraud? Right. And so, it's, did they make a representation? So let's put out the hundred percent thing that you mentioned and just say it just says tip. Right. Right. Is there any affirmative representation about what will happen with those tipped monies? And with, it depends. Yeah. And it depends. I think at the very least, it depends. It might depend on a lot of things, but I think at the very least, it depends on what what is wrapped up in the word tip. Mm-hmm. Right. So the choice of DoorDash to use the word tip is itself a form of representation mm-hmm. about something, right? Why didn't you call it something else? You didn't call it a dinette set. You didn't call it a Sunday, you know, an Easter bonnet. You called it a tip. And and, or uh, and that it, means yeah. things, right? Yeah. So what does it mean and on average and to whom and what would the reasonable person, ex, you know, take that to mean? These are all interesting questions, I suppose. Uh, the last one being, I think, the most important. What would the reasonable person in this context take it to mean that you had called it a tip? Mm-hmm. And what I think they would take it to mean is that it was uh, money directed from the food getter to the food deliverer, separate and aside from whatever anyone else was paying them. And there, there are different kinds of fraud. And Orrin was particularly concerned about criminal fraud, which I think is the less interesting question here, honestly. Uh, fair enough. Um, 
because you know fraudulent inducement is this this um i don't know how old it is so this we should have my friend greg class on here he's an expert huh. on fraud and um uh is long-standing um uh common law doctrine right i mean so so you can claim that you were fraudulently induced to enter a contract and the remedy is usually to rescind the contract sure. right so it's not like ordinary contract remedies and it's not like ordinary um well it's it's more like a tort remedy Right. right. And it's, you know, let's go back and put you in the position you were in before this thing ever happened. Right. Where a contract, the normal remedy is let's put you in the position you would have been had the person performed their promises. Right. And so a classic fraud as opposed to inducement is instead of entering a contract, we're talking simply about, you know, you, uh, one person makes a falsehood. The other person in reliance on that falsehood, like gives a thing of value mm-hmm. normally to the liar. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess to the degree that you depart from that paradigm at all. If you're thinking of, as I think we often do, right, these legal terms have sort of a paradigm case. Yeah. This is like Wittgenstein games, blah, 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 yeah, right? Yeah. So there's sort of a paradigm. It, to the degree that you move away from that paradigm at all, you introduce a level of uncertainty about whether or not an official presented with that fact pattern would or wouldn't conclude, mm-hmm. oh, it's a fraud or, oh, right. it's an X. Right. Right. If the paradigm case of X looks this way. This other thing over here, well, it's different. Like it's got some similarities, but some differences. Okay, well, is, right. is that going to be called an X or not? So uh, if DoorDash, so for example, if DoorDash says, you know, you choose from this menu and we'll deliver these items from this place, but in fact they have their own like cheapo knockoff factory <laughs> making some food in, in uh, uh, somewhere else, right? And so what they deliver to you is not what was promised, right? You, you, that, you, that might be more like fraud. That seems much closer to the paradigm case. The, par- the paradigm case of fraud, right? Yeah. Where they, they say they're going to do one thing and they're intentionally not doing that and doing something else, right? Yeah. And, um, they get, and you part with your money for the food now, I know on, the, not, on yeah. the belief that it is food from this restaurant when it's not. Right. They know that it's not because they set the whole thing up that way yeah. to get you to part with your money. And we're that not talking like about, fraud. just to be clear, we're not talking about any elements of any particular torts, the different kinds of fraud torts, or we're not talking about uh, criminal fraud and its elements. Like each of these has elements, right? And so mm-hmm. I think what Orrin is referring to is if you're going to make a claim about fraud, Right. Whether it's fraud and the inducement or was it fraud and factum or something else like those things have elements, right? Sure. And those elements need to be proved. And, you yes. know, and when fraud and uh, fraudulent inducement, I forget what they all are, but it's it's, you know, it's that you made, even... you made a misrepresentation about something material that the person relied on it to their detriment. And there may be some others in various states and there, you know, so then that last point, right, each state could define this in a slightly right. different way. And there may be a federal, and... you know, there's right. the honest services. So if you uh, say statute. I want to look at a lot of cases, you would say, OK, the cases of, of who, like what, whose cases? Right. Like if it's if we're talking about state law, it would be one thing. Maybe it's the laws of the state of New York. So we could mm-hmm. look at New York statutes. We could look at New York cases, decide that under those statutes, right. and try to get a sense for how this new set of facts would be evaluated under those existing authorities. Right. Dan's <laughs> Dan's reaction was <laughs> was much more like this is this is the paradigm case. Right. Like it's 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 not distant from the paradigm case. So what's your hesit what is one's hesitation in concluding it's fraud, given right. how close it this is, is to the paradigm? Why, this kind of case is why we prohibit fraud. Someone lying to me in order to get me to spend money, which I do spend because of the lie that they told. Right. Uh, and I wouldn't have otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's right, because yeah. of the lie that they told. Right? No, it's and, and to to say, well, they didn't get they didn't get uh, me to give it to person to them. They got me to give it to someone else with whom they're involved in a commercial relationship, right? So, I mean, that is a, a thing that's happening here mm-hmm. that might make it different from the paradigm, right? But you know, there's differences and there's differences. Like, wait a minute, it 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 helped them pay that person less. 
because I kicked in some of the money. So how is that not paying them? Yeah, but it's, it's I'm not. But paying the weird them. thing is that again, if you move your if you move perspective around to the other side and you see how this thing is structured in an insurance way, then you see ah well actually what they got paid what was only because I tipped right. It's because I tipped that they are able to provide this <laughs> right these insurance payouts. Right? So, it <laughs> right. Is, so it is my in the tip aggregate. Money. In the aggregate. All, right. all they're doing is they're smoothing out my tip money. It's it's kind of like tipping to the back, right? Or, you know, it's yeah. it, tipping to other staff. Yeah, we're just smoothing the tip function. Smooth, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the be- I, what I loved about this exchange, which, which was – which went on and it was great because I read it so many days after the fact that it was over. So, I, like, it had this very satisfying feeling of, like, this many, many exchanges of these tweets. Um, it's sort of <laughs> – in part – there was this, they kept going back and forth about, why do you need cases? Well, I want to look at the cases. But why do you need the cases? Because it's good to look at cases. It was very, it, that part of it was kind of fun. Well, when I originally saw it, and I said, you know, Joe, we should talk about this quickly on the show. Um, and, and I think we've been nothing if not quick uh, about this. <laughs> but. <laughs> yeah, it's only uh, been and, two and hours. hours. Like, yeah, we, <laughs> yeah, we've been at it for like 45 minutes or so. Um, and and infuriating to those people who really are how the doctrine really matters. They're right, right? The elements matter. Like if we were really talking about whether this was fraud, we would talk about which kind of fraud, right. where the elements are, and all that. Um, but but I thought it was just a fascinating contrast in in think in, in people's attitudes toward identifying what the law is. Yes, right. And and Orrin was like, well, you know, if this is this fraud. I need to look at the cases. I need to see, you know, what the principles are and how, and, you know, there, there are different ways of doing, of looking at the cases and figuring out, but there's an idea of reasoning from the cases to figure out whether this is fraud. Right. Um, it, they, it, it may be ruled out by the cases. You know, there may be something directly on point, which says it's not fraud. And um, not that, not that Oren doesn't believe in kind of norm, normative legal scholarship as well. He might say, well, it should be fraud and here's a way to get from here to there and everything, you know, so yeah. he's perfectly aware of that. Um, whereas Dan's reaction is, as you said, this is this, this is close to the paradigm case of fraud, and so yeah. the cases are meant to kind of help us figure out what to do in in some orbit around those paradigm cases. And it, and so- it was really it was it was so great because it was sort of like it was like watching an argument between Holmes and Brandeis in real time. Because you know, <laughs> Dan Epps keeps saying like, "Think things, not words." Yeah, and Oren's like. I need so I need some more of those words, yeah, right? <laughs> because there's a there's right. a there's a process, right? right? Where yes, you have to think things, not words, but you also have to. But but of course, words are the things we use to do all that. Yeah. So you've got to get these things to talk to each other, right? Uh, my, my the the stuff in the world that's supposed to turn out a certain way because that's a better way than a worse way, and and how am I going to achieve that using this instrument mm-hmm. called the law? Uh, so together they were like having this brilliant sort of total picture of yeah, it what to evo- do. Yeah, it immediately evokes the you know I think a a paradigm struggle uh, about about what to do with cases and and so I thought that was I thought it was interesting. Although as I got more into it, I found I found myself mo- both less persuaded by both in a way, right? Less persuaded that the cases would help me think through what was really tricky about this, <laughs> right? Right, because this is. Um, but also, and, and I'm less persuaded this is paradigm fraud. Yeah, yeah, both, um, which is interesting. I mean, um, this idea that it's a that that the that the system might actually be good, but for the malignancy of the rest of our system, but only works with this kind of with with ignorance of the consumers is fascinating. So, just a, a last word on yeah. where I think I am at this moment on the on the sort of on the question of is this a paradigm case of fraud and why it would be good, I think, to think of it that way. 
um, is, and this may be the kind of the trademarkish person in me. Um, I, I think it's really important for ab- everyday words to be able to be used in in an everyday way by everyday people, and I think that that a a thing that concerns me about thinking it through from DoorDash's perspective is that it's sort of corroding that ability yeah. of just people who aren't, who didn't go to a seminar about business strategies for food delivery to like, <laughs> <laughs> to, to be able to grok what is happening yeah. using words that we use every day. So like if you need a PhD to figure out how to use the word tip in the precise way you're using it, <laughs> that tells me something is gone deeply wrong here, right? People need to be able to use the word tip in an ordinary way right. to refer to its ordinary referent um, with all of the fuzz that that has, right? I'm I'm not denying it has fuzzy boundaries and all the rest, right? Right. But there's something uh, good and worth preserving about having commercial vocabularies that include ordinary everyday words that people get to use in an ordinary everyday way mm-hmm. to, to pretty much achieve their objectives. So if we're going to sacrifice that, it would ha- I would think it would need to be for an awfully good reason uh, yeah. and, and with eyes open, um, not closed or, 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 uh, induced to look at it's just something else. So fa- I mean, you know, there, there just seems nothing wrong. Right. With, the, Did with that an, make sense? What yes, I just yes, said? it does. It, I, and I agree with that. It, it, it's just, there doesn't seem, you know, you think of, um, going to a local pub and the, the boss, you know, sees the waiter get tipped, uh, get, get stiffed out of a tip. Right. And the boss just says, you know what, if you don't get 20% on a table, you know, come to me, I'll, I'll pay you out of the register. I'll, I'll get it to you. Right. That seems like <laughs> that's the boss kind of smoothing out. Right. And it's and basically what the boss has done is to guarantee a certain tip wage. Right. Uh, a certain at least rate. And there doesn't it doesn't seem malignant. But but one, the minute that you do that, what you what what you're doing is you're taking away from consumers the power to determine, uh, you know, the power to determine the, is, the but wage. Is that really the same? Yeah. If the if the if the pub owner. In, if in every case they agree that they will raise the the tip up to a to a twenty percent rate, right? That's a of whatever the bill was. Yeah, that's and a guarantee. Of course, the bills are different. The bills are different. So it's uniquely tailored to the individual tipping circumstance, which I think the DoorDash thing was not. Well, but, but I think their delivery fees are are tied to the amount. But that I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Um, okay. But, yeah, but, that was that wrinkle. Yeah, that before. was that wrinkle. But I think, I think it um, is. But. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so the, the the whole thing like it, it's a house. It's it seems like a you know house of sand where it's kind of like yeah. it, it is an attempt to keep kind of the power of the consumer of you know, the tip. The, the, what where I'm sympathetic with what you're saying, right, and where it, it does hit me is that that language does seem to speak to the consumer and say, hey, you have some power here to affect this person's material circumstances. Right. right Some people take the, that as an invitation to be punisher or, yeah, and or a th- hero, and and most of us just take, okay, I'm going to do my part, right? Yeah, and and I and of course I don't I I want no part of the dark side of that sort of power trip that comes right. with like oh I get to or even the hero side like there's something yeah you wrong with the hero side certainly so that it, it it could be gross um depending on the facts sure right um but but you know so it's it's really exposing I think that um if you want to have the objective that you think may be laudable here about like evening these things out, then, then you just have to like, you know, raise the, the, uh, pay, right. I mean, you just have to, yeah. Right. And, and t- do away with tipping. 
but it is but, hard to do it is hard to do some things are hard to do halfway and so if you're in if you're going to invoke tip if you're going to invoke tip culture mm-hmm. but but try to subvert it at the same time you're you're running into some peril here yeah which is we could conclude that you would engage in a wholesale campaign of deception <laughs> <laughs> despite having right. good motives in some and along some line and that the deception like at, at a at a secondary level is making your products seem cheaper than they are right and 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 by subsidizing basically people who are stiffing people right so the rest of the people who tip if you think there's a normal tip that people would pay like those people are basically subsidizing um the the people who pay nothing who, and there the article, sh- you know, yeah, was, indirectly they are subsidizing. Right. And especially, I mean, but once you put in the guaranteed amount, then you see in a, you know, really it is like, it's, you know, if it's a guaranteed amount, then, um, they're the, oh, I don't want to go, I, I don't know. Uh, it, it just seems that, um, the dishonesty here is like, they're trying to have a lower priced product. And how do you have a lower price product? Well, you just have a part of the product, which includes uh, the, a part of the price of the product includes a tip amount, right? Yeah. And if you have enough customers, you can model how much you'll get in tips, right? And then you have some way of like allocating those among your workers because you're also trying to attract workers. Yeah. And so there's a certain, what they want to do on the worker side is to have like fixed pay, Right in a way, right? They want to have, but on the, but they also want to make more money as a business. And so they are able to advertise cheaper prices by having part of that be tip. But that only works if people tip in the, in a customer a way, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and when you say lower prices or cheaper prices or whatever, I, I, I think it's competitive prices, right? There's multiple delivery services and they're probably working with lots of the different restaurants, but mm-hmm. also a lot of the same restaurants. Yeah, they, they want lower prices in order to outcompete. Correct. Like, like if you say I've got a five dollar delivery fee, it's it's not cheap because they're trying to shortchange someone. It's it's they're trying to price competitively in a market where multiple people are offering the service. But they're taking advantage of the human psychology, which looks at the well, price on the are. website. And and so if there's one site that says you know don't tip, it's ten dollars per delivery, and another is uh, you know seven dollars per delivery, but they have a little tip line that you can right. right? Most people are going to tip, and so the prices may be the same, but people may yeah. prefer the seven dollar delivery because it's the seven dollar, not the ten dollar place. And I think actually, um, it, I think it, this mechanism does not rely on most people. Um, it relies on a small number of people. Most people will not comparison shop, but but enough will comparison shop that it, that that it will affect prices. I don't. I think I think people will comparison shop. I mean, uh, I enough think, I think will here, here, enough will to affect. you and I live in Athens, Georgia, where there are a couple of delivery services. Um, there are. See, I don't even know. <laughs> food, you know, there's there's bulldog food and there's cosmic delivery and oh, I don't know that one. Yeah, I've not heard of that one. There's some others. Oh, I'm gonna go comparison shop. <laughs> um, but I think if you're in New York and you work in an office building every day and everybody gets these things from different services, there's a lot of information going around about how there much is. people are paying. There is, even right. if you're not yourself avidly and actively comparison shop. Right. You'll hear from friends and you'll know. Oh, you know, right, yeah. right, For right, sure. right, right. No doubt about it. All right, I, you know, I feel like. Um, but that was a messy way of talking. That was a messy conversation in some ways, but fun. It was fun. You don't think I should? I, I feel like I should go back and delete that first part where I just have to. Hell no. You see, I mean, like, I was being no. even more charitable. I thought there was a fixed base amount and then and then there was this guaranteed tip amount, right? If I say, Joe, your pay is going to be $5 per delivery plus, uh, you know, a guaranteed five. And then you get to keep it. I don't know how that I don't even know what I'm, you know, whatever. <laughs> you can cut that out. What? What I just said? <laughs> yeah. 
No, I, I leave in all my boneheaded the stuff. Dan, the Dan and Warren part of it was what made it, was a big part of what made it so fun. Yeah. It's a good thing we didn't have him on the show to talk about it. <laughs> that would have, probably would have been able to explain it in about 10 minutes. Yeah, it would have gone way. much too fast. Um, yeah, oh well. Um, did, uh, real quick, did you hear about this California bar exam I did fiasco? see that. The letter that went out to some law administrators, law deans or some such thing, and then they wound up just sending it to everyone who's taking the exam. So we, I'll put in the show notes. We have we had a whole conversation with Derek Muller, and I feel like we talked about the bar exam in past shows as well. This Maybe it's a follow ago, up. Though. Yeah. Well, this is, you know, at least 20 years ago that yeah. we talked to him about. It was in the early days of the show. So sure, it was sure. in the late so 60s. So it might have been 30 years ago. The late 1960s, I think. Yeah. And 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 Derek is awesome and he has a lot of like models of these things and right. and collects a lot of data. And so we had a good conversation about the bar exam and you know, I I I think, you know, over time I've come away thinking that we should probably just do away with the bar exam. Um, although I, I need to go back and listen to that show again. No, would this be like a, like a Wisconsin sort of, you get to practice in the state where you went to an ABA approved law school. And then if you wanted to practice in some other state, you, would you have to take an exam or, well, you know, there there was this great, we really don't want to tackle this topic, I think. Well, um, is it David Schleicher? I loved that episode of with, the weeds uh, with Matt Iglesias and oh David Schleicher, which gets to the whole legal scholarship thing. Yeah. Um, but yes, it was a brilliant conversation. I really enjoyed it thoroughly. So people go listen to that episode of the weeds, if not yeah. all episodes of the weeds. It was a great, fun conversation. It was awesome, and it yeah. made me and it, occupational it made me licensing kind of keep tweeting. Stuff. Yeah, because yeah. it's just like. Um, these barriers, these like needless protectionist barriers are things that should unite like right and left. I mean, because sometimes many of them are needless. Some some of them are not. Right. And, and attorneys can do a lot of damage because, you know, people don't know whom to trust. And, you know, so there can be issues. Right. Right. The question is, do the licensing schemes that we have do any good? What, what is the purpose of them? Right. And (laughs) I just don't think, I don't think the bar exam is like a, and, and might a, a, a really robust way of reporting bad behavior that your lawyer uh, engaged in that other people could access right. reliably um, so that you could go see if a lawyer you wanted to hire had any yeah. problems, right? If you had a truly national, robust Ex- system of that. Which is an ex post system, which which is a system which gives to consumers information about what you've done, right? And not about what you've hypothetically done based on a test or something like right. that. Right. And that and that or would character and, and that would encourage people to behave better, knowing that they were being monitored in that way. Right? Yeah. They were the, people could report a problem, therefore produce less problems. So, so, there so the way fewer the, reports yeah. about you. But right? the way the bar exam works, if I if I wanted to move right now and go to California and practice law, I would have to sit for the California bar exam. Indeed. Now I've already passed. And you would be in luck. I've already <laughs> I've already been admitted in the state of Connecticut um, and the federal court there. Um, but I would still have to sit for the bar exam in California. And uh, I think that since I passed the multi-state, speaking of Warren Kerr, he did this. Did you see him? Yeah. But it has this? to be within a certain number of years. So, so you, th- that multi-state score doesn't last forever. I think it lasts a long time. Because uh, or- Oren was able just, I think, to sit for the um, to sit for the essay portions. Okay. But I don't know how long his, I don't know how long it's been since here's, he took an Here's exam. what I think we shouldn't do. Of, like two days before a bunch of people are taking the bar exam across mm-hmm. the United States is misdescribe bar exam requirements. <laughs> like even a little bit. Yeah, but if you... Because <laughs> <laughs> this is literally the weekend before the bar exam few days at the end of the month of yeah, July. Yeah, yeah, so let's yeah. not do that. Okay, all right. Uh, well, so, But I don't know which way it is. But it, anyway, I I, I, I... I think that's the most important <laughs> thing for people to keep in mind is that you don't know and I don't know 
Yeah. And they, so anyone taking the bar exam has already signed up to take the exam and they've already signed up for where they're sitting and all I that. Understand and, that. And, in, and in Virginia, they've already gone and they've been met with a tailor and they've gotten the appropriate dress. Indeed. Yeah. And, we, but we hopefully they've also that. gotten their green uh, Converse all-star sneakers to wear. Who is that? As I did. Oh, because you sat in Virginia? I did take the Virginia bar. I, I did not pass it, but I did take it. Um, this was my very first bar exam. It was a Virginia uh-huh. bar exam, which I did not pass because I did not study for it. And that oh. is a sure way not to pass. Yeah. Well, that, that's what happened to Kathleen Sullivan in California. Indeed. And Oren was very mindful of that. He described taking the bar exam and taking it very seriously. It's very, you know, it's it's difficult. Yeah. Um, so you have to have some strategies about it. And um, uh, so anyway, there is this, there's this multiple choice, multi-state part, which is usually on one day. And then on another day, and in some states, I think even two days, there are essay exams. That are specific to that state. Well, they can be. You know, in Connecticut, they were general law. They get to, um, they get to do with them what they want. In some states, they're, you know, this is where we're going to test you on your knowledge of our law here because our law is very special. And in, Virginia in does that with vengeance. <laughs> I'm living proof. And California is like notoriously difficult. And it used to be a three-day exam. I don't know whether I think they more, condensed it to two. I think they've cut but, it down but, to two. Look, but again, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. So, so we should not talk about this. If there's a third we day. We really shouldn't talk about this. <laughs> if there's a third day. Can we just day, talk about the imagine letter? Imagine there's a third day and our discussion got people to, after the second day not to come back for can, the third can day. Can we just talk about the letter? You mentioned there was a news story about a letter. <laughs> well, I th- there needs to be some context because for people that know about the U.S. system, uh, this, this second or third day of the bar exam – um, involves these essays, which can be on various topics. Like there might be an essay involving a fact pattern on on evidence law. Like, is right. this evidence admissible? This thing happened. Right. Or this constitutional thing. Last or, bit of context, uh, the list of topics on which you might be tested on these essays is almost always a lot longer than the, than the number of essays. Yeah, there's so right, many. So you'd be like three or four or think five of all essays, but subjects. there's like 10 topics. Yeah. So knowing which among the 10 topics are the five essay topics would be useful to know. You could whittle out, you know, depending on how many different questions. How yeah, many and questions how long in advance you yeah. knew. So anyway, so California, the week before the bar exam, I think earlier, um, earlier this week as we recorded, recording on a Saturday, right. um, sent, uh, sent the list of topics early to a number of, I think, deans, although it's not clear. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to link up the statement from the California mm. State Bar so you can see exactly what they say. Uh, and this was apparently inadvertent and um, people found out somehow and they were upset. It's not clear. Their statement makes it clear that they're, they don't know. Um, they've not heard for sure that any students ever, right. you know, any, any former students. Uh, so, bar so what did they do in an abundance of caution? So on Friday, they sent out an email to all people sitting for the California Bar saying, here's exactly what we sent to those <laughs> Deans, which is the list of these topics. Right. Uh, and un- I believe unprecedented, they, des- and I think, I believe they described doing that, quote, in an abundance of caution. Yeah. Like precisely because they did not know who had heard about it and who hadn't heard about it. In, in case anyone has this, everyone is going to have it. Correct. And on Twitter, there was a firestorm. Um, you could just. Um, really? Oh. Be, what was the firestorm? The firestorm is, yes, but like people, you know, there may be people who had this like for days and days earlier. You should cancel the essay portion and just use the multi-state. And um, the, the integrity of this examination is totally in question. And um, Interesting. I'm I, so glad I did not know about that Twitter <laughs> firestorm. Well, but you can – Hearing you say those things, I can understand why there was – The stakes are very high. The for, stakes are especially high. Especially for people who are repeating testing and you know, whether they can ever be a lawyer may turn on this, at least in California, although right. encourage them you know, to move elsewhere because you know, yeah. California is notoriously difficult. And I think if there had been – Evidence that there was like a concerted effort weeks ahead of time to make sure that 
at a certain law school, everyone taking the bar exam from that school had known about it. That would, ca- I mean, that would cause me very serious concern. Um, if there were evidence of such a thing, which I don't know there was any evidence of at all in any way in this mm-hmm. instance. Right. Um, uh, so yeah, it could, yes, it's stressful and it could be, um, chicanery with the law students who are about to take a bar exam is like really, really, really bad. It's, yeah, it's like throwing this like, you know, anxiety hand grenade into yes. a situation where people are already like yeah. near borderline, you know, anxious. Unlike the like small, like these, we're basically shooting a cap gun here. Like we're mm-hmm. not throwing grenades, you and I, when we don't know the requirements and we're no. saying stuff and we're just like those, remember those little caps? Do you have those? <laughs> I did kid? not like those. You didn't like the caps. They made no. a little popping, like a little banging they made sound. Pop, but I was, I don't know. I, there was something about them. I think, you know, I, I didn't, I, I didn't play with like the real looking guns when I was a kid, you know, just laser weapons and no, stuff. No, no, You could, you could bang those things and make the sound. You didn't have to yeah, have Yeah, but little... I, I see that you probably like that. You probably like the smell. Oh, the smell was fantastic. Oh, I hated it. And it was, it was, it. no, it wasn't as good. Um, it wasn't as good as firecracker smell. But of course, firecrackers, you know, there's the whole firecracker. Yeah. Like you got to yeah. deal with that. Yeah. Right. If you set off a mess of them in that big string, they would come in and you could light off a bunch of firecrackers. The smell was just fantastic. Have, have I talked about firecrackers on this show? No. Not I, that I remember. I'm pretty sure I have. But like, you Which know, means it could we're going to have week. to. Yes, it could have been. So um, I don't know how old I was, but I convinced all the kids in the neighborhood to add their all the fireworks, you know, fireworks they bought to one big grocery bag. Oh, I think it, you did mention this it, to me once. I think, but I think it was on the show. Okay. But, but in, in where I was from in, in this suburban south around July 4th. That's like a lot of firecrackers. Around July 4th, people would be like, this is in South Carolina. Um, like everyone, like all the neighborhood kids in our little cul-de-sac, you know, it'd be like, when are you going to go to the fireworks shop? And when are you going to get your fireworks? And people would get different stuff. And like, like, ma- like massive amounts of really And they come back stuff. with like a bag of stuff and we kind of put it on the floor and people look at what everybody has. And they, these are really awesome. And then, you know how those little snake things, those little black things that you like? Oh, yeah, turn, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like those, that's a waste. That's a what? That's a waste. Well, wait, right. Uh, past a certain age, it's just, it, it sort of loses its magic. Yeah, it's like, you yeah. know, it's not going to go up. It's not going to bang. It's not going to do anything. Yeah. Um, those little things that spin, go into the air, you know, and, and with colors, those are those are great. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, you got your bottle rockets. You got yeah. your M80s. You got your cherry bombs. You have you to have a base of bottle rockets. It's you like got a your fine, Roman candles. Yeah, it's like a fine stew or something like that. You need, <laughs> the bottle rockets are the base. Like, you got to have, you, you can't got, yeah. ignore them, right? You need some bottle rockets, yeah. for sure. So. I don't know how many kids it was, but we filled a grocery bag with um, a gross of bottle rockets. And I think there were about 3,000 firecrackers in this thing, if you counted up you know, oh, the, the different things. Oh, my. And a bunch of – That is quite a and lot. And a bunch of Roman candles and a bunch of those little spinny things. And, and some of those – you know, some of the big <laughs> some of the big bottle rockets, which are more like milk jug rockets. You know those ones You know oh. that are more like a maybe quarter size in diameter? Can you do the spinny thing again, dude? You know, bzzz. <laughs> this is the, they, that yeah. would make a great ringtone just you going <laughs> uh and uh i don't know I, I somehow no parents found out about this and we put it in the <laughs> that is amazing we stuffed the you know, we were worried that like what, what are you gonna light and you were the one who was organizing I was, I was this. the ringleader wow i was the ringleader of this for sure um, this is uh which I, now i was not a fire starter kid i did not this play is with matches. amazing to me i did not like yeah no right no, I mean, my, like, listeners, you all know, I think the world of Christian, I think he's very smart, he's very funny, he's very caring, he's very, but you're, I, I mean, you, <laughs> you, you are so much better to me right now, <laughs> because you're this little pyro ringleader, 
Yeah, but I, it wasn't the – I don't – it's hard to describe. Like I never like – you know, we built forts in the woods, you know, you know, and, and I had friends who would like go and, and take lumber from some of the houses that were being built in the, oh, in the neighborhood and oh, take wow. it into the woods and we'd use that and everything. Okay. And like th- that always bothered me, like, you know, the illicit taking of stuff, yeah. right? Um, and I was never one to go back in the woods and like want to start fires or anything like that. Right. Just, I had no – But this has – no, but this uh, this organizing the fireworks thing has this sort of patina of respectability, yes, right? I, because I was putting people on a are buying the fireworks. Like their parents yes. probably know they're buying the fireworks, might be helped them buy the fireworks. We're going to put it in the middle of the cul-de-sac. Yeah, and it's a socially like people do this, right? And they only get fireworks. Everyone else will take cover. And the organizers will <laughs> because will, this is going to melt it. a hole in the middle well, of the cul de sac. We were worried that it wouldn't all go off because, like, what do you light in a? You got thousands of things, and like, I kind of knew that if you just lit a few, they might not all go off. So we kind of stuffed a bunch of newspaper down in there, so <laughs> right, so that we'd well, be sure <laughs> that everything would ignite, right? And uh, this is so good and, and so bad. So I lit. So so we did at night. We we. Somehow, mm. no parents still found out about this, as far as I know, and and we put that thing but out in the middle of the cul-de-sac. They were inside, like we were out just shooting off fireworks. That's what you did. <laughs> yeah, kids go out and play, and right? then they hear, and then we we light this bag and um, and then run and hide behind the cars at the edge of the cul-de-sac. And um, I, I, the most glorious sight I've ever seen <laughs> proceeds because it is like you can't imagine the sound of thousands of firecrackers going off at one mm. time, but it was exceptional and there are these little spinny things shooting out there are roman candles going off in all directions oh. now we probably should have arranged for all the roman candles to remain or uh to remain vertical <laughs> so there were some we- instead of shooting at you there were some weaknesses in terms of the safety preparations for yeah. this thing and it was true this like- was not a fully conceptualized event is what oh it was, well, it was it was not say- fully theorized and conceptualized I would say it didn't have in mind the full set of values would want to have in <laughs> <laughs> thinking about neighborhood kids. But there were, you know, in the middle of it going off, there were doors opening and kids being pulled inside their houses. <laughs> and it did leave a scorched mark in the middle of the cul-de-sac. It would have to. Um, but I think it caused some neighborhood tensions. I think people were angry. Wow. But, but people always refer to it as the bag. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, this is like there's an episode of a show like some sort of Coen Brothers like Netflix show or yeah, I Amazon don't think Prime it, show that's got to be made about this. It wouldn't the be bag. great. Yeah, I don't think it would be great. But no? they, but it was uh, it was it was good though. If you were there, you had to be there. Like a Stranger Things episode mm. to put it in the right time period. Yeah, and people getting on their huffy bikes, oh. right? And, or and and the little littler kids are on their big wheels. And we're like, you know, riding around till it gets dark, just waiting, right. waiting. We got this bag, just waiting. But like, it's got to be dark. Now, the great thing about the title for this episode, The Bag, is that <laughs> the people who, who are writing this thing, they're going to be super tempted to call the episode Cherry Bomb mm. because you get to use that song from Joan Jett, Cherry Bomb. You know the song I'm talking about, right? No, it's, um, I love rock and roll. I know that one. Okay. Um, that was number one, Casey Kasem. It's called The Bag. One right, this episode weeks, is weeks, called The Bag. Because okay. you, you don't want to go down that road of, you know, ch- 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 cherry bomb. You don't want to do that. I wouldn't do that. No. Um, okay, I'll call it The Bag. Well, um, but, I, I'm just amazed. I'm a gog. <laughs> I thought I told you this before. I'm sure I've mentioned this on the show before. You probably have. Anyway. And I just wasn't in the, I just hadn't caught the magic of it before. The upshot, and I apologize for The that. upshot is, the upshot of all this is, that there are a bunch of anxious California bar exam test takers now who are reorienting their studying 
to try to take advantage of this new information, wondering if other people already had this information. And all the thing makes me think is like, you know, so many problems in our society is because uh, arise because there are tremendous costs that we just accept that just have become kind of capitalized in the cost of doing business around here without thinking too much about it. And one of those is the bar exam. Yeah. And so part of it is just the, you know, it probably serves not much purpose. I, I, yeah. I, I need to go back and listen to – I need to get another shor- shot of Derek Muller in me to, sure. to realize like whether I'm like not thinking about this enough and it's been a but while. But in the short term, all this has done is sort of upset the equilibrium yeah. and gotten people to reexamine a bunch of strategic or, you know, strategery yeah. about – you know, well, if I ignore this list, but other people don't ignore this list. I don't need blah, to study blah, secure blah, transactions. Blah, blah, blah. Instead, I need to study this and right. that and this. Just and that. like. Yeah, but like, you know, is this making any, is this helping any consumers of legal services in California? Is this helping any individual student? Is this like, I think there is a value in a, in a, in a, in an Atlas type survey of the legal field. Sure. Like I thought doing bar review was helpful in that respect. And I kind of enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, Here's but, who but I the think... bar, bar exam as a – and anyway, there, so there's so many ways that you could go with this. But I, my observation only was, boy, look at all this cost. Yeah. And and no one's and, – and it's just because we assume it's, you know, it, it costs money to take the bar. Yeah, there are all kinds of costs which are not hidden. But the, the biggest cost here I think is hidden and that's all the anxiety and also the walls it puts up between states, moving between states. Yeah. And that just shouldn't exist. Like if you're a lawyer in – Georgia, you should be able to move to California and just start practicing law. Now, I said, so today, here was my suggestion on Twitter. Abolish the bar exam, right? So you replace it with something. Maybe it's like a universal bar exam. Maybe it's some like, you know, bare competency test, something like that. Or maybe it's just getting a degree from an institution which has been accredited. And maybe you require those institutions to offer a certain course that you think about. Should. I don't know what it is, but it's something along those lines, which is designed to, right, like just – instruct in minimum competency without getting, you know, building up too much anxiety, whatever. Um, but, the, but, the, but the biggest thing is if I want to move between states, like allow, have this national requirement for lawyers, right? Get rid of these state, you know, things which are too yeah. easily uh, mechanisms. There needs to be a reporting system for, for people to all re- that report. But that would be better national than state-based anyway. Uh, agreed. Yeah, That's yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. There needs to be a, na- a robust national system as well as a way for people to get, if, if someone reports something, incorrectly or or falsely that needs to be dealt with as well because you don't right. want to injure the lawyer's right. means of a livelihood so uh, but, but some states are some states are um uh have unique procedures um some have you know rare procedures some have unique <laughs> laws some have laws which are rare you know california says we're a community property state hey you separate property state lawyers you need to know something about this you know maybe so i say give them a day they can have a day-long set instruction into, so you want to be a lawyer in California. <laughs> right? Here's how you file stuff, right? Here's how our court system works. You know, right. this, you know so in, in law school, you learn the basic template, and now we're going to tell you, here's some yeah. California. Maybe it's two days, but like... And a bunch of people would do that. But the bar exam is not one day or two days. It, well, it is maybe two days, but the right. studying is days and days and days and days and right, days. Right, right, right. Right? And, and, and everyone overstudies. So if all the resources that were going into that stuff and went instead into let's create this really good day or two day thing that people can take if they want to mm-hmm. and a bunch of people will 
mm-hmm. if we do it well. Maybe we require it. Like that's one sure, that's maybe that too, one but, little bit I might say, okay. Yeah. Like to say but, you're a lawyer in California, you got to know how to file stuff. And maybe you got to go to this. Yeah. And, and maybe other like peculiarities. Like we're, we've got this weird law of whatever and here's what it is. Like, sure. Maybe you should have to know that. I don't um, know. Th- that sounds like a would be a good change. <sighs> it just made me think of all the other things in our society, which we just accept, which have tremendous costs compared to what we could be doing. Right, it's the it's the hidden costs that are the killers, Joe. <laughs> yes, some, some some of them are. I I think uh, think of the costs two hundred years ago of not understanding electricity. Of course, there are costs and co- <laughs> like there are coordination costs of getting to that new equilibrium. It would be, would it be would it be bet? I mean, would we all be better off if there weren't QWERTY keyboards on everything? Maybe, like maybe there's a keyboard pattern that we would be net better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it'd be very costly to get to that different equilibrium. I guess. Not least because a bunch of people would have to pay a switching cost. Mm-hmm. Other people wouldn't, especially people in the future. Yeah, but if the gains are high enough, we would do it. Right, and Calder Hicks and winners win yeah, more than but, losers but see, lose. But you're yeah, already yeah, doing yeah, yeah, the yeah. thing that I'm saying we ought to be doing, right? Which what? is You're already doing the thing which I'm saying we ought to be doing, right? Which is, which is, which is recognizing, hey, you know, maybe there's something out there where we would be more efficient with this than we are right now. Okay, right? sure. So, yeah, right. And this is hard to pull just off. the bar exam is too often just taken for granted. Well, there has to be a bar exam. Like there has to be, well, you know, no, there has to be licensing. There has yeah, to be, and, we have to license this, license that. That's one of the things that in that uh, Weeds podcast that yeah, came out, right? It's don't like, come to me for that because that's not what you're likely to hear from me. <laughs> right. Uh, what do you think? What do I think about what? I don't know. I, this topic, whatever. Run, th- run through the barnyard. Let's get all the chickens in the air. Um... We had some, so so I wanted to mention that podcast in the weeds, uh, the thing on fraud. Uh, I want to talk about uh, so Matt Iglesias's critique of legal scholarship. Did you see you got a, everyone all in a? In a in I only a, saw like two, like there were two or three tweets about this. I didn't, I didn't see much of the of the Twitter stuff. Some of which was humorous. So can I just oh, you, po- you liked my tweets about can, it? I think you gave me some likes. I did. Which I, did, I, pr- I, saw I appreciated your, that, Joe. That was I, I very saw yours. There weren't that many others. Listen, the, here's the thing. <laughs> Um, let me put my cards on the table. Okay. I think, um, so Matt Iglesias is like me and like anyone I've ever met, a mixed bag, right? Mm-hmm. So there's some great stuff and there's some not so great stuff. I think the way in which he is glib about a number of things, including the way that legal scholarship can be kind of shoddy, um, it may, might be too glib. Right, too dismissive and sweeping in his condemnation. Some of which is done mm-hmm. for humorous effect. Less so than Atrios, I have to say. I think having Who heard love, and but. and mostly heard, but but also read a lot of Adiglasius over the years. Mm-hmm. I, I think he is net way in the positive on my register of his, you know, what he's done. Right, you've learned a lot from him. I think you. I've learned a ton. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he is extremely clever about economics and incentives-based reasoning, which is a big part of law, actually. Yeah. Um, uh, so, and I think he's got a good sense of humor, and I I think I happen to agree with a bunch of his sort of, sort of the, the, the bare-bones politics stuff. Um, the things he tends to say are a load of BS, I, when I hear him say that, tend to think, gosh, yeah, that does sound right. That does sound like a lot of BS. And he doesn't hedge. 
No, like, which I like. It's like he doesn't hedge it. Like he says, you know, this is like when he talks about like Mitch McConnell's, like here's yeah, what he's trying Paul to do. Ryan right. And, it's like, right. it's not like, well, they see the world this way and I see the world that way. It's not, they're trying to give a bunch of money to rich people. Like it's <laughs> like he puts it in very like plain terms, but he doesn't make it simpler. And, and he doesn't intentionally try to make it simpler than it is. I agree. Right? And, it, and it makes it so it makes it easy to know where he is. And therefore, as I'm thinking about it, what I can sort of figure more around it or think about it because he's very clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I like all that. Um, it did seem like in this instance, he was painting with one of his sort of classic broad. Now, what do you mean places. by this instance? Because we didn't actually say what. Well, he, I don't remember exactly. You, you keep asking <laughs> me for these exact words. Like, I, I don't know. I thought like, you were. But, you know, call, get the tweet. I don't like read it. If you want to know the exact words, people go read it. I don't remember. It, what he the said. essence of it is that a lot of legal scholarship is hot takes grown large. Yeah, there, so he can he did some comparison to punditry. Yeah, like this is the this is just like the pundit hot take stuff. Um, I think he was motivated by um, the uh, Professor Wax uh, brouhaha's. Yeah, let's not even talk about that. I uh, know, but show. this is I'm saying what sparked his I mean, thing. This episode was it was in a reaction one. to something she had written. So something that seemed to have the the appearance of at some level or in some degree the appearance of legal scholarship uh so i think it's important to know that that's kind of what he was sounding off about yeah uh, because i think he reads a fair amount though like i do and you can he reads him. in lots of disciplines and then he reads a f- law review articles and he's i think critical of law review articles as as appearing in some forms in, in some ways to be similar to other forms of scholarship but having a a deep deficit in seriousness and rigor. It, at least as to some of them, right? Because it, it's it, in the very same week, he's has this episode with David Schleicher, mm-hmm. a law professor at Yale Law School, who's written some really interesting stuff. And they're talking in depth about really some of it with Chris Elmendorf on, um, you know, they're interested in the same. In some yeah. Of them. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Iglesias has clearly read some of his stuff. Yeah. And thought very highly of it. Yeah. So it's not like he, it thinks all legal scholars, all legal scholarship is bunk or something of that nature, right? He's he's in the he's actually having a deep, amusing, fun, interesting, informative conversation with a legal scholar right. about legal scholarship. But he has views about it as an outsider who reads seriously in it and around it. it and 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 economics and epidemiology right. and also right. some I mean. policy around, yeah. studies yeah, yeah. and because the we has, has these white papers this, right he has a disdain for the non-peer review nature of it i think that a lot shares with a lot of people from other disciplines probably talks to a lot of people from other disciplines who sure. probably slag on legal, legal scholarship for that reason yes and and we can hit the t- play button on our we've had i think multiple conversations about you know pre Versions of peer review, post versions mm-hmm. of peer review, legal scholarship yeah. falling more in the latter, ways in which that's deficient, ways in which it's good, blah, blah, blah. Ways in take which all, there should be all something. that is read. Right, right, right. So that we don't need to do it We again. have our own views about how to do uh, journals and that kind of thing. But um, the part that interests me the most, at least at the moment, is this idea, this kind of similarity to hot takes. It's, it has been, I, I'm sure we've mentioned this on the show too, this this thing about legal scholarship that um, an idea that you have right can it seems to me can always be finessed into something publishable there just aren't barriers to finessing an idea into something that's publishable it has to be written in the right way and framed in the right way and cited in the right way but there's nothing in those things which will make it unpublishable now 
may not, it may not be um, everyone's favorite piece of scholarship. So I could see people saying it's, you know, that, that you can't always finesse an idea into good legal scholarship where they have some metric of good that they would say applies. And so for the originalists, for example, it might be if it's, a, if it's scholarship about um, constitutional rules or statutory rules, is it grounded in this certain kind of method? And they might have views about what methods are better than others, and they might have views about whether scholarship is good or bad based on how it applies those methods. True. But the question about like raw publishability, right? If I've got an idea about an outcome, uh, whether it's an outcome in the world of ideas or in the world of acts or judicial decisions, like can I make that idea into something that I can publish? In the sciences, that's not true, right? Like just because I have a cool idea about how the universe should work doesn't mean that when I actually put pen to paper and do computer simulations that I will have the evidence I need to create something publishable about that idea. The idea may just not have enough evidence behind it. In mathematics, you know, where I came from, like just because you have an idea about what should be true doesn't actually make it true, right? You have to (laughs) prove that it's true, right? Um, Where prove means some very specific things. Right. And and so I... It's... it's, um, you know, you know this. This I, I do think it's a it's a problem. I don't know. It's hmm. we're not going to be able to finish talking about this today because I, I I'm of so many minds about it that I'm not right. even sure I could have a coherent conversation well, I, about it all today. It, it, Others, is, yeah. it is a it is a. I don't think it's a. Pro, I wouldn't call it a problem. I would call it a peril. Right. Yeah. Um. To an unwitting. So con- wise. You're so wise, Joe. <laughs> to an unwitting consumer of legal scholarship, uh, it is a peril that. Um, it is difficult to articulate how small a bit of egg white would need to be before we could whip it up into a meringue of mm. law article. Right? <laughs> um, that, I think that is true. Uh, that, that, that it doesn't take very much egg white to get a pretty big meringue. Yeah. Uh, if you just put your elbow into it. Um, and that, that, that does for, for someone who isn't aware of that fact, uh, if fact it be, and I think it is, th- they could really stumble into some, as a reader, as a user of stuff, as a consumer of the stuff, could really stumble into a problem right. in that way, right? Um, now, th- that same the same sort of lack of experience or understanding for that reader would also m- cause them to not really understand when they were seeing some really good, solid, like not meringue, but really good, solid stuff. That was in a law journal, which could yeah. easily be right side by side with something quite frothy. Um, to if I'm going to continue my metaphor, here. <laughs> um, so you know, uh, well, but, it, but the problem pairs with the problem of there not being an objective standard of merit at all, right? Right. And so, like, there is, and I was like, trying to explore space? a different dimension. I know, I know, I know. But is there space for a discipline where there's a certain register of talking to one another about? kind of integrative social problems like and 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 where where they have to be solved now right like in other words you know a judge has to decide a case right and and uh, an intelligent resolution of that case may depend on all kinds of facts about the world only some of which we're aware right including an ability to predict the future which we can only do with a certain degree of uh, of of precision right and we may even be unaware of what degree of precision we can actually do that with right so there are all kinds of things we might want to know in order to do this better right but um and, and so uh, a physicist faced with that challenge saying, well, can you build this device that will measure, do this measurement or do this thing? Like may, may say, we just don't have the tech. We can't do that. We don't have the technology to do that. But, but a, a judge 
you know, it has to, well, these two people are fighting about it. We've got to decide. Either one of them gets the money or the other one gets the money or one right. of them gets the house or the other gets the house. Yeah, the, one of them is asking me to change the status quo ante and one of them is resisting that. Right. And, and so we have I to need decide. to decide what to do. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, to our credit, like just the mere preservation of the status quo ante is making a decision and law has recognized that. Right? So <laughs> we have to, we have to make a decision. And so the, the legal scholarly enterprise is partly talking to one another about how to do that. And so a lot of scholarship these days is, is, well, some of the best legal scholarship, I think, is bringing in these other disciplines, right? And it's talking about, like, what can we learn? What is the state of the art here? How can we build that into the way we think about our kind of legal culture and our and, and social problems? And um, so a lot of it is going to be, okay, I've got this idea. Here's, here's my best effort to tell the story of this idea. What do you guys think? Right. You know, someone else does the same thing. That's not the way people convey ideas in chemistry or ecology or, or even economics. And in part because they're working on very different problems, right? right? So the person who's solving a problem in chemistry, who's innovating in chemical methodology, in the methodologies of chemistry, the the, the most basic uh, knowledge of chemistry, mm-hmm. right, um, is engaged in a very different activity from someone who's saying, you know, got these problems in, you know, a pollution, uh, and how we regulate pollution. And do these things we've learned about chemistry in the last few years, and it's usually about five or 10 years behind, right? Um, would they help us do this pollution stuff better that we're trying to manage here as a social problem? And that's, you're not trying to innovate in chemistry. The, the, the law and policy person is trying to innovate in law and policy. Yeah. So, so of course the chemistry they're doing isn't what the chemistry PhD investigator will be doing. Right. Obviously. Right. Um, and I think that doesn't derogate, either doesn't derogate from the other in terms of sort of the way I'm looking at it. You, you like yeah. both are useful and both are quite different from each other. We had a, we had a listener. The problem send, would come from bringing one expectation to the other's task. We, we had a listener send in an email, which was making a little bit of a funny, but, but linked to this, um, article that that larry solomon highlighted on torture mm-hmm. and so this is an interesting example of this right because it looks like a fascinating article and i've only read the abstract i've not read the article because I, I just saw this email today yes and so i was just alerted as to did it. i see it today um and 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 it describes like you know one way of seeing torture which is different than our usual ways of seeing torture is as degradation right is destroying kind of the 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 perceived continuity of life that one normally has and replacing it with like an, you know, a momentary squeal to be released from pain or right. So there's a, is it interesting kind of, and that, that is a reason uh, to uh, f- like not to do it. Right. Well, oh, yes, it, it's another uh, concern one may, one may have and, and yeah. one may think that that reason is very powerful and should, uh, and should overcome any inclination we might other have otherwise have to use torture. That's possible. Um, but what's interesting is it is a story about what we should be like, I don't want to get into moral realism and we can do other shows about ethics and everything, but, uh, just in terms of like a bit of legal scholarship, it is an exploration of kind of what, why do we do the things that we do when we impose like social coercion and why, what reasons should we have from abstaining from those things? And some of those reasons might be, Hey, we just, you know, we just found out from this chemist that this chemical does X and that's bad. And so we should not have as much of it in our air. And therefore these standards we already have, which says keep dangerous stuff out of the air. We'll just add that chemical to that. So we're going to do something different now because of this bit of knowledge. And so this is a different kind of knowledge, right? It's more of a, you know, it's more of a philosophical or ethical argument about the nature of ourselves 
which could change over time. Different cultures could have different. Sure. I don't know what his argument is or her argument is in this piece about whether it's an absolute or a description of certain cultural attitudes about uh, about the self and and about torture. But like, I don't know. Legal scholarship is where we have to decide: Are we going to torture? Like I would say, no, we should not do that. But like we, you know, it's the dis- it's the discipline in which we debate whether we're actually going to do those things. Not about the nature of torture or what torture really is, or right. um, is torture justified in a moral sense. But are we, as this state right, right now, going to do this thing? Right. So it's or, and it's not even you know what are its effects because the answer to that question would you would just feed that into the other the the other conversation about whether or not we're going to do it. One thing you might want to know is the effects of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might want to know the accuracy of the information it produces. You might, there's all kinds of things you might want to know. But knowing the answer to any one of those questions is not itself an answer to the question, are we going to do this or not? Right. We, it would feed into that conversation. It could be a but source for understanding various right. dimensions about it, but it isn't itself providing the answer. Because there are all kinds of other things that have to go into it, like who gets to decide whether we do this and uh, what are the reasons for saying that they decide all this kind of level stuff that I've talked about in another sure. paper. And But there's more to it than that, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like um, how does it interact with other laws that we have and what takes precedence over what? It is true, as you observe uh, frequently and, and, and wisely and helpfully, uh, that there is no objective – there's this objective standard of value problem yeah. that legal scholarship has. And and one of the re- – I think one of the reasons why it has it is because it, unlike just about any other topic or enterprise or subject area, is like trying to tackle some of the biggest, most important, most workaday things about everyday human life. And in that context, it is awfully hard to come up with a single sort of frame. Yeah. I resist most important, but I get what you're saying. I mean, in the sense that it, it cashes out in consequences immediately. Most pressing. Because it is a study of those. I mean, it is So maybe not most important, most pressing. Yeah. Um, What are we going to do? Right. Especially when you think of it more broadly as the study of rules in in organizations, right? Because then, you know, you think of law as the study of like the law of a state, but also, you know, what bylaws of corporation and. But managing social relations in in, in conditions of scarcity for some value of the word scarcity um, is (laughs) that is like you get up and it's it's just that's the day like every day all day. That's it. And you're doing it. You have what, to. Whether you have this meta-discipline about it or not. And, right. And law is the meta-discipline about how we should be doing those things. Yeah. So coming up with a, a standard for value in scholarship about that, it's not surprising. It's basically maybe ha- – maybe, ha- maybe, you know, in its, in its most – in its strongest form, having a standard for value about that meta-task is basically to have a view about what we should do. Right. Like overall, yeah, or like it, or at least it's too easily um, welded to that, yeah, right. And and so we maybe we're a little bit more skittish in legal scholarship than we would be in in others about talking about uh, in other disciplines uh, uh, about you know uh, talking about what makes something good because to talk about what makes something good is basically to talk about what we should do. And one way to manage that skittishness is to push it off into the future. By saying, look, uh, let's have that conversation later after 
the stuff has been a, the scholarship stuff has been around a bit and people have had a chance to look at it and think about it and maybe use it in their own work. And so some of this is sort of a proof of the putting in the tasting of it thing, mm -hmm. um, which doesn't sound like the worst way to handle it. Um, it might not be the best either, but, um, and, and sometimes law is the, is the, and legal scholarship is the site at which you will encounter truly like profound revelations about things, whether they are from people working from outside using the law as examples or people working within law, right? Whether it's, sure, you know, you know, certainly Coase, for example, in the law and economics movement, you know, uses law and legal relations as key examples and, and in his economics work. And then, you know, Guido Calabresi from inside the discipline talking about, you know, property rules and liability. Like these are just really kind of mind-blowing ways yep. of looking at basic social relations that change your view about what we should do or can't or at least affect. You can't think the same after you've heard these ideas yep. about that those questions as you as you did before. And peer review which has some great uh, facets to it um also has downsides and I think one of them is a risk that legal scholarship and legal literature has very little risk of. Uh which is sort of a gatekeeping orthodoxy that prevents the wide public dissemination of some of those things because they strike people as too bizarre mm -hmm. when they first occur, right? Um, because there aren't the sort of gatekeepers for orthodoxy in in the legal domain that there are well, in this is my <laughs> certain like chemistry, yeah. math, yeah. physics, biology, blah, 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 name anthropology, name your thing, right? Our, our protections against paradigm shifts are less are more subtle. Maybe. Well, cer certainly uh, they do not, I think, extend to um, the inability to get your ideas in front of other people. Yeah. I, it's just that the, the frame in which things are. So if, if you're hmm, uh, this is this is a little bit tough, but it I, I do think that the that the students as the main gatekeepers for most people's scholarship. Yes. Like, this is one thing I was wondering, I, and I don't know, like, I'd want to think about and study this more, but um, the, the more doctrinalist turn that law has taken in the last, say, 20 years or so, uh -huh. like, there's some upsides to that for sure, paying, getting more people paying more attention to doctrine. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to emphasize this in the tweets about it, right? This is, a lot of this is good stuff. Um, but some of that may be a function of professional rewards, Right. What do you get rewarded for as a professional legal scholar? Right. It's like student placements for most people, especially as more schools have turned to the kind of publication model. Right. What publishing law reviews is more, you know, you don't get rewarded in law school. And there were a lot of law schools where maybe you used to get rewarded for doing like bar service and maybe for being a professional lawyer and also teaching classes. And now more and more kind of the Yale, Chicago you know, model has, has won out among schools with, all over the nation, right? right? And no matter their ranking to be gross about it. And if that's true, you get more and more people competing to get students to accept their work and more and more students playing this role as gatekeepers, right. the number of journals expands. And so it makes sense that like student, um, what has immediate and obvious value to students may be easier to publish. Yes. So there, you know, maybe worth thinking about that. Uh, true. <clears throat> I I don't think that's um, a. In fact, by definition, it really can't be um, the same kind of pro professional, uh, rigidly normative orthodoxy. Yeah, but you know, 
you know, some incumbent um, scholars with a grudge can't necessarily keep you out either. And that's, you know, you hear about like professional jealousies in other fields, whether it's chemistry or biology or physics or something else, you know, keeping a paradigm shift. Uh, I don't mean to talk about like whether there are really paradigm shifts. Well, we should have a whole philosophy of science show at some point, Joe. <laughs> but, um, but you know what I mean? Like a real yeah. change uh, in, in the basic model that everyone shares. Like that, that can be held off for quite a while by professional reputation. That's my point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I I totally agree. Um, and, uh, what else should we say? So you know, I don't know. I'm kind as of, we know. as we head into hour eight, what are what are we what do we think? Um, I had another. You know, we were going to talk about seminars. Yeah, we could do that some of the. Let's time. do it another time. Yeah. So let's just do. I'm a little very pre- tired. Actually, we'll just, yeah, I I am too. Let's do just a little preview. People can tell this is a this is a let's just call this a late night recording. Mm. This is well, recorded late at night. Um, super late. But um, we had on the list, and we will talk about, because you wrote something which I think is really beautiful about, like, what the expectations are for students during seminar, which is about how to listen to one another, how to speak in a, in a discipline like law, which is why I think it's attached to this right. topic we were just talking about. Right is an exaggeration. Um, it's, a, it's a page. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and it was very much inspired by a similar one-page thing done by uh, uh, an old college professor of mine who I encountered at a seminar recently that mm-hmm. I went to and that he talked about this. He gave up and delivered some remarks about seminar at this thing and this event in Santa Fe. And, um, he had a handout and I saw the handout and we chatted about it and I shared with him that I was interested in doing something cause I'm teaching a seminar this fall. Mm-hmm. And so I was interested in coming up with something, repurposing it a bit and coming up with something from a sort of a law seminar perspective. Um, some of the things were quite, translated quite nicely and directly others didn't so i left a bunch of stuff that he did off i had some things i did that i added some things i lifted rather uh directly uh hence my credit to him um i'm not engaging in plagiarism um so yeah it was uh it was a good it was a nice uh, it was a nice pra- it was a nice um way for me to begin to prepare my mind and my self for this fall's seminar, which I'm very much looking forward to. So I think we should do a whole show about, uh, um, I, I hesitate to say the virtue ethics of being a student and a professor, but like, what are some of the classroom virtues mm. that help us to be good learners and good listeners and good kind of caretakers of each other? That would be a great you know? conversation. Um, and I think what you wrote, it really crystallized this for me, that there really is there really, there really are attitudes. You know, everyone knows this, but sometimes you know things pop into your perception and crystallize these thoughts. But like, there, there really are some ways of being with one another which help this process better than others, right? There yes. are some ways of that are just, you know, you're going to learn more, you're going to be a happier person, you know, when it's all done. Uh, and so, I think we should talk about that. The uh, beginning of a school year, right? I would so welcome that. We're getting close. Yeah. Um, all right. What else you got? Nothing. <laughs> What's the name of the show again? Nothing. What's the name of this episode? Nothing. I thought it was the bag. The bag. It's in the bag and the bag is on fire.